All right. Evening, everybody. I think either I scared everyone last night or there's a bike jump tonight, or maybe a little bit of both. So um, I'm glad to be with you tonight. We've, uh, if you're just joining us, we've talked for the last couple of weeks about uh, the meaninglessness of work and wealth, and tonight we're going to talk about adversity. As, as we're in the book of uh, Ecclesiastes, when we talk about the meaninglessness of anything, it's meaningless when we live our lives under the sun, S-U-N, and not under the sun, S-O-N. And so as we talk about the meaninglessness of anything in Ecclesiastes, it's in that context. Uh, a couple interesting things for me, uh, when I was saying, what did you, what did you do today? Um, one of the things that I did today is what I do every um, day when I'm at Hume Lake, is I try to make my way down to the lake to have a little quiet time right there on the front of the lawn and uh, do a little worship, do a little reading. And when I come up, I typically uh, want to be in a book of the Bible, and I just kind of ask the Lord to prompt me and what he, where he senses I should be. And at the same time, I'm reading in a scripture reading plan. So I don't know if you're in like a regular scripture reading plan. I am, and our church is. And so our scripture reading plan has us in the book of Proverbs right now. And so I would just wanted to just to say, I, you know, I read this this morning in my own just personal quiet time, um, and it, it stuck out to me, and it reminded me the stuff that we're talking about is so relevant. Proverbs 10 um, verse 15, I think that is with my glasses, yeah. Uh, the wealth of the rich is their fortress, the poverty of the poor is their destruction. We talked a little bit about wealth last night, didn't we? And then he goes on to say, the earnings of the godly enhance their lives. We talked about that last night, and I, got, I think I got a couple blank stares a little bit, like, is that really in the Bible? That's, it's, it's in my Bible. Um, I'm, I'm assuming that means it's in yours as well. Um, but those who ignore, uh, I'm sorry, the earnings of the godly enhance their lives, but evil people squander their money on sin. And so the book of Ecclesiastes is so wonderful because it gives us timeless uh, wisdom, and uh, it calls out some things we typically don't think about. And uh, last night we talked a lot about wealth and this idea that um, there are godly things to do with the wealth that God entrusts to us. And uh, there's meaninglessness in pursuing wealth as the ultimate thing in life. Um, but there are really incredible things we can do with the wealth that God does entrust to us in this life. And so um, I hope you believe that, and I hope you're using the wealth that God's entrusted to you um, what, on whatever scale it is in, in that way. All right, tonight we're talking about adversity, and um, also Art, when you were talking about what you did today, uh, we, had, we had a couple conversations. I left that um, time on the lake just as I was leaving my time on the lake, and someone who's been with us uh, in many of these sessions uh, so sort of walked up and started talking to me about their life and some of the things that they've been facing. And the conversation was all about adversity. So I felt like this morning God was prompting me for some of the things we'll be talking about tonight. Um, this person was actually telling me that in the last four weeks, they've had two of the worst weeks of their life in terms of adversity. And the level of adversity that they have faced has been overwhelming to the point where, um, well, I won't get into all of it now, but, um, but it, was, it was really an incredible story and we talked through those things, and then uh, we, we spent a little time together today going to some stores, walking around a little bit, and we, we bumped into the Tonuses uh, over there at the snack shop. And uh, Dr. Tonus knows uh, our daughters, knows one of our daughters very well uh, from Biola University, and so we started connecting with Dr. Tonus, and um, he asked about a particular kind of adversity that she, she had been sort of struggling with, um, an adversity that affects her. And uh, it was so kind of him to ask, and we talked about just the adversity and, and maybe, maybe one of the reasons for it. Sometimes it's hard to put your finger on what the reason for that adversity is. And actually, 
that's exactly where we are today. I've had some providential conversations today that have prepared me for the things that we're talking about tonight. Um, maybe you have as well in this last season. And so we're just going to dive into Ecclesiastes 6.10 through 7.14. And so again tonight, um, could I ask someone just to kind of open up um, God's word and, and read that out loud for us before we start? Is anyone sort of brave that would say, yeah, I'll open up God's word, I'll read with a loud voice Ecclesiastes 6 verse 10 through 714. So a little chunk, but anyone willing to do that tonight? Great. Thank you. What was your name? Eric. Eric, thank you so much. Appreciate that. Thank you. Appreciate that. Isn't it isn't it great to hear God's word? I think that's the ESV. Yeah, it's the ESV. Yeah, thank you, Eric, right? Thank you, Eric. Um, five practical lessons tonight on adversity. And I'm figuring that that's something that we can all uh, relate to this evening. I'm, I'm assuming we've all had our measure of adversity, um, different degrees, different issues, but, um, but same topic, really. And uh, the book of Ecclesiastes is intensely practical. And so we're just going to look at five lessons on adversity um, this evening. And I'm assuming that um, this is going to be helpful because it's hard for all of us, I believe, to find the good in adversity. And sometimes it's even hard for us to trust God in the midst of adversity. As much as we say we love Jesus, we follow Jesus, we want to serve Jesus, we want our whole lives to be devoted, dedicated to him. When we hit adversity, sometimes it's hard for us to trust Jesus. And my hope, my hope is that um, out of our time tonight talking about adversity, that we'll, we'll hope, to, hope we would trust him a bit more and see some good in the midst of the adversity that's in our lives. But there's a few lessons. The first one starts uh, in verse 10 there where he says, whatever has come to be has already been named. And it's known what man is and that he is not able to dispute with one stronger than he. I think we know who that is. The more words, the more vanity. It's an interesting one. And what is the advantage to man? For who knows what is good for a man while he lives, while he lives a few days of his vain life, which he passes like a shadow? For who can tell man what will be after him under the sun? So I think the first lesson we see here um, from the, these verses this evening is it's meaningless for mankind to know the ultimate meaning in adversity. So again, tonight, I'm going to ask you to repeat some of those things back to me so that we can kind of talk a little bit with each other um, and uh, so we can stay focused on the things we're doing. This is a, repeating things audibly helps us to remember them. So if you would um, just say those things with me as, uh, as I prompt you to do that, that would, be, that would be incredible. So I'm going to say it is meaningless for mankind to know the ultimate meaning in adversity. Would you just say that with me together tonight? It is meaningless for mankind to know the ultimate meaning in adversity. And you might say, well, why? Why do we face adversity? That is one of the $64,000 questions of life. And at the end of the day, I just want to say we really don't know. Only God knows. He has, he has determined the events of our lives in advance for his eternal purposes he is the only one that knows the real, the true, the deep, the ultimate reasons for the adversity in our lives. He says, whatever has come to be has already been named. God's already set it into motion. And maybe your reaction, like the reaction of the people that the author of Ecclesiastes was writing to is, I don't like that. Like that, that just rubs me wrong. I like to control my circumstances. If you're an athlete, you learn this phrase, control your controllables, right? I, I want to control the controllables in my life and in my performance. That, that translates out of athletics into just life. I want to control the things that I can control. And I think we're all pretty good at wanting to kind of have a grip on the things in our life. 
I don't like that. I want to be in control of my outcomes. And I just want to say, this is the obvious response. This is the obvious response, and the teacher knows it. That's why he says, and it is known what man is, and that he is not able to dispute with one that is stronger than he. Like, this is the one thing, like, even if you wanted to change the ultimate circumstances in your lives and affect them, like, you're not going to be able to wrestle with someone who is this much stronger than you. Like, ultimately powerless to change the circumstances of our adversity in an ultimate kind of sense. Could we make some progress in some things by God's grace? Absolutely. Are we supposed to be passive in the midst of our adversity? Absolutely not. But the ultimate end and the ultimate purpose is... Well, that's for someone with a pay grade much higher, much higher than ours. He set these things into motion. And I want to tell you, if, you're, if you struggle with that if, that, if you bristle at that, if you, if you don't like that, I want to tell you, you're not alone. Every human being in the history of the world has kind of bristled against this a bit. And, and if you're saying that you don't or you never have, maybe we'd be a little bit less than honest with ourselves. That's why we see the Bible address this throughout human history. In the Old Testament, in books like Isaiah 45, 9, woe to him who strives with him who formed him. How often people strive with the one that has formed us. We don't like the adversities in front of us. A pot among earthen pots. Does the clay say to him who forms it, what are you making? Or your work has no handles. What are you doing? Why are you allowing this? In the New Testament, we find it in places like in Romans 9, a quintessential chapter on this on the, on the meta level. But who are you, O oh man, to answer back to God? What will what is molded say to its molder? Why have you made me like this? And so because we don't know the ultimate meaning of adversity, and we can't change it even if we wanted to, the more we talk about it, the more we pontificate about it, the author of Ecclesiastes says the more foolish actually we become. He says, the more words, the more vanity. And what is the advantage to man? For who knows what is good for a man while he lives the few days of his vain life, which he passes like a shadow. For who can tell a man what will be after him under the sun? I think the author of Hebrews is saying, arguing with God about our adversity is a waste of breath. So such a hard reality. And the book of Ecclesiastes is just telling us so straight and right down the middle He's not trying to clean it up at all. He's not trying to sort of make it soft around the edges. He's just like, this is what it is. That when we, when we complain and we, we, we use all of our words, it's sort of just a waste of breath. Do you know what is not a waste of breath? What is not a waste of breath is praying about our adversity. Complaining about it, pontificating about it trying to search it all out, trying to get to the ultimate meaning at the end of it, and, and, and using all, it's vanity, the author of Ecclesiastes says. But what's not vanity is, and what's not a waste of breath is praying over these things, praying over the things that are in our lives that are in the category of adversity, and it could be a lot of things, family things, relationship things, health things, financial things, physical things, emotional things that God would show us, reveal to us some measure of what he attends for us in it. And so, I, you know, I, my, my assumption is before, before we move on this evening that we've all um, got something, we've got some measure of adversity this evening. 
Uh, I can't imagine there's anyone in this room that's like, no, everything's really hunky-dory and there's, there's no adversity. Um, and if that is you, it's probably coming. So maybe this prayer for you would be a prayer of preparation. Um, but for those of you who have some kind of adversity this evening, can we just pause for two minutes? Would you just bow your heads and hearts with me? Because um, I've been talking about it, and I don't want it to be a distraction to you, this, this thing that's there. I, I want to just give you a moment to bring it before the Lord. So would you just take a moment just to pause, and, um, and would you just pray over the adversity that you're facing that you wish was different? And whenever you use words to speak to God in prayer, it's never a waste of breath. So as we pause even for two minutes here in a posture of prayer, none of the words that you would speak to him is a waste of breath. So if, if you're in the midst of something and you don't like it, would you just tell him for a moment? You know, if you're in the midst of adversity and you've blamed him for it, would you tell him and confess it to him? you're in the midst of adversity and you can't see anything, any reason why, any redemptive reason why you might be in it, could you ask him to give you a glimpse this evening? For some of you in this moment, you're also probably prompted to think about the adversity of someone else. I think Christians are innately selfless people now that their lives have been transformed by a selfless Savior, their hearts changed, their lives filled with this Holy Spirit. You may be thinking about someone else right now in this moment too who's facing adversity. Would you pause and pray for them? Would you ask Jesus to comfort them? Show something of himself to them? Okay, I'm just gonna say amen. Sometimes it's hard to pause in the moment of a, a message and, and to pray, but uh, to hop back into it, but I trust we'll be able to follow along. I just wanted to give you a moment here to just release some of those things to him and acknowledge them. I hope that's helpful. And the author of Ecclesiastes wants to be helpful to us in the context of adversity, in this concept we're talking about this evening. And um, although it's hard, it's difficult to get to the ultimate meaning of our adversity, um, there are some things um, about adversity that are, are more helpful to know than others. Um, to see the greatest amount of good in it, and that the author of Ecclesiastes knows this, and so he draws our attention. The teacher knows this, and he starts into a section here where he uses a series of proverbs, and um, nine times he uses the word good or better, and he's going to contrast some things, and he's going to help us to see the good or the better things in the midst of adversity, and so um, he starts in verse one of chapter seven by saying, a good name is, it's better than precious ointment, and the day of death than the day of birth. It is better to go to the house of mourning than to go to the house of feasting. For this is the end of all mankind, and the living will lay it to heart. And the second lesson that the teacher wants us to understand is that it's more helpful to think about our ultimate adversity than to live our lives ignoring it. Can you say that with me? It is more helpful for us to think about our ultimate adversity than to live our lives ignoring it. And you know what our ultimate adversity is. Our ultimate adversity is death. And most of us don't really think about death on a daily basis. Uh, we don't really want to, but the teacher tells us that actually thinking about our death is, uh, is more helpful than avoiding it. It's more helpful to think about 
our death than it is to avoid thinking about it. And the question is, why would that be? I think one of the answers is if, is, is if we think about our death, it will give us a desire to live our lives in such a way that we have a good name while we're living, right? A good name is better than precious ointment and the day of death than the day of birth. If we think about the reality that there's one day going to be a day where we're no longer here, it will help us reorient our lives and think about how do we want to live our lives while we are here in such a way that we have a good name. Not just a good name for our family name, but a good name for his family name, right? We're part of his family. Behold what manner of love the Father has given us that we might be called children of God, and so we are, right? Like we, we bear the ultimate family name, right? And so uh, maybe you've done this analogy before but, uh, or this exercise before. There's a number of exercises that can help us do this, but anyone ever done that exercise where you, you write your own eulogy? Isn't that a happy thought, writing your own eulogy? <laughs> anyone ever done that before? You might want to think about it. My, my, one of my mentor, um, one of my best mentors in life, Gib Martin, he actually, he actually wrote his own eulogy. He wrote his own sermon for his funeral. He, he, he orchestrated the whole thing. He knew exactly what he wanted to do to communicate the people, to communicate to the people that were going to be left behind. Gib wasn't a control freak, <laughs> but, but he knew what he wanted. He wrote his own eulogy, he wrote his own sermon, and then he had his, he had his son-in-law preach the sermon and lead the service, but Gib orchestrated the whole thing. And I remember talking to Gib about this while he was alive, and he was saying, yeah, yeah, no, I've already thought it through. I've already thought through what the end looks like, and I want to live my life in such a way on the, during the days that I'm here, no matter how late it was at that stage, Gib was maybe 80 years old, had more energy than all the 30-year-olds combined. But, but he was going for it because he had an end in mind. He wanted this to be the picture at the end, and, uh, and he lived into it. Maybe an exercise like that would be helpful, reverse engineering your life into the things that you want to be said when you pass from this life to the next. If you think about your... Your death, it will also remind you that there will be a day when, um, when actually adversity is over, right? If we have faith in Jesus. He says, um, a good name is better than precious ointment and the day of death than the day of birth. The, the reason for that is that, one of the reasons for that is that, that it reminds us there will be a day where suffering and adversity will be over. And it kind of helps us to look forward to that day when, when we'll lean into kind of a different kind of existence and place. And the one place we're most likely to think about death generally is a funeral, which is why the teacher says it's better to go to the house of mourning than to go to the house of feasting. I mean, this is crazy. The, 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 the author says it's better to go to a funeral than a wedding. Anyone really believe that? That's really hard to believe. I just, we came to Hume Lake after being at a wedding. We were in giant wedding in Kingsburg at this fantastic farm on the, on the river. And like literally like hundreds of people and all this food and dancing and celebration. It was fantastic. It was beautiful. We were going to drive up that night, but we we're like, no way. We're staying here. We'll get up early the next morning. This is an incredible evening. It was such a blessing. And the author of Hebrews, uh, the author of Ecclesiastes rather says, yeah, it's better to go to a funeral than to go there. Because when you go to a funeral, you learn something <laughs> that's really, really important when it comes to adversity. And everyone should think about this because everyone will experience this. He literally says, for this is the end of all mankind and the living will lay it to heart. The author of Ecclesiastes is just laying it out there. You know, I used to think that the, the book of Ecclesiastes was really hard to understand and you needed like a degree in philosophy to sort of figure it out. 
And the more I've looked into it, the more I've realized, no, 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 he's just laying it out there. It's so simple and plain. He's trying to make it plain to us tonight. So the teacher wants to tell us that there is some good in adversity. And he starts with some of the, some of the worst kind of adversity, that is, that is death, our greatest adversity, to prove his point. He starts at the worst place he can. <laughs> you know, sort of like ripping off the Band-Aid. He rips off the Band-Aid very quickly. And then he continues to move to other lessons about adversity. And we'll see some of them in verses 3 and 4. Look at them with me. He says, he said, sorrow is better than laughter. That's hard to believe. For by sadness of face, the heart is made glad. The heart of the wise is in the house of mourning, but the heart of fools is in the house of myrrh. And the third lesson I think we learned from these verses is it's more helpful to gain wisdom through adversity than to try to live without it. So I'm going to ask you to say that with me. I know it's a little hard to believe and to say with a lot of, uh, with a lot of energy, but, but can we say that together? It is more helpful to gain wisdom through adversity than to try to live without it. Right? Our hearts are or should be most glad when we gain wisdom. Sorrow is better than laughter, for by sadness of face the heart is made glad. And wisdom comes through adversity. Most of the time, wisdom does not come through prosperity, unfortunately. <laughs> There's some wisdom that comes through those prosperous seasons, but most wisdom comes through adversity more than prosperity. And this is why the teacher repeats this idea about the funeral home. Did you notice that? He says, the heart of the wise is in the house of mourning, but the heart of the fools in the house of myrrh. Joy comes with wisdom, and wisdom comes with adversity. Joy comes with wisdom, and wisdom comes with adversity. I just finished up a, a three-year master's program, and uh, I was in a master's class, and uh, it was a fantastic experience. I was in a cohort, made some good friends. Um, the first session of this three-year experience was one of the most meaningful sessions to me. And, um, and I, I didn't have a graph you know, on the keynote, but, uh, but it was like a, you know, like a line graph, picture a line graph, right? And, uh, and here you've got years of life, and here you've got, you know, wisdom, or vice versa. And so we're just measuring the wisdom that you have in the years of life that you live. And the guy that was leading the master's cohort um, did this exercise that really sort of blew me away and gave me a lot of great perspective, and it was this, that if you take this, this line and you plot it on a line graph, and you take the average man, this was a, a course filled with all men, but let's just say the average person, and you plot their life... Um, on years and wisdom, the tragic trajectory of someone's life, the tragic trajectory of someone's life is when they grow in wisdom till about age 30 and then they plateau off. So we call that a, a boy in a what? A boy in a man's body. A boy in a man's body. That's a boy in a man's body. It's a man that has gained wisdom till age 30 and then he plateaus off and he has no more wisdom. That's a tragic trajectory. It's so tragic to see that. He said that there is a typical trajectory for a man and the typical trajectory for a man is that he grows in wisdom until about age 50 or 55, and then he plateaus off, and eventually he starts to lose his wisdom. It starts to wane. And he says that is the typical trajectory, and what's happening in our culture is it's saying, when you get to about age 50 or 55, you need to throttle back on your risk. 
You need to throttle back on the things that you step out and you need to play it safe. Play it safe with your investment. Play it safe with your career. Like your career is just about to be over. You're gonna get the gold watch and the, and the, you know, and the, and the dinner with the, the cake from Costco. So just, <laughs> so just wait till you get there and, and, and you're gonna sort of ride off into Florida on a boat somewhere with shuffleboard and like it's almost there. So just don't mess it up. That's what the world is telling us. And he's saying, no, 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 that's the typical trajectory. And the reason why there's so many young men that are looking for older men to mentor them and can't find them is that most men are on that typical trajectory. They're throttling back. They're saying there's no more risk because risk carries with it the potential for adversity. And wisdom and risk are proportional. And the reason that we have wisdom is we risk. We step out in faith. Faith is proportional to wisdom. When we step out in faith, we gain wisdom. What's scary is that often comes with adversity. And by that time in life, a man has gone through generally enough adversity. <laughs> He's just tired of it. He just doesn't want any more adversity. What Bob says is the, is the kind of kingdom trajectory is you get to that age and you start considering at age 50 or 55-ish, what is next in this next season? What is God asking me to step out in faith in? How can I step out in faith to continue to gain wisdom knowing there's probably going to be some adversity? Because every time I've gained wisdom, it's come with adversity. It's come with risk. It's come with stepping out in faith. Joy comes with wisdom, and wisdom comes through adversity. I say, okay, well... Well, then what, what are the ways that we can gain wisdom through adversity? What, what, what is the good and the better? You're saying that the author of Ecclesiastes is saying there are things that are better about adversity than others. What, are the, what is it that's good in the midst of this? Well, he tells us a few things, and get ready to jot some things down because they're bullet points, and I'll go through them pretty quickly here tonight. Verses 5 to 6, it is better for a man to hear the rebuke of the wise than to hear the song of fools. For as the crackling of thorns under a pot, so is the laughter of the fools. This also is vanity. Four or five quick things. One, we gain wisdom through the adversity of correction, and this is good. We gain wisdom through the adversity of correction, and this is good. The laughter of fools is not lasting. It is here and then it's gone, but the joy that comes through the adversity, even the adversity of correction, is a lasting thing. Does anyone like to be corrected? <laughs> I read in Proverbs this morning, if you correct a wise man, he will still become wiser. If you correct a fool, he will hate you for it. No one really likes correction, but wise people say, okay, I'll receive the correction so that I can grow in wisdom. We gain wisdom through the adversity of correction, and that's a good thing. If you're looking for some good in the midst of adversity, look at correction. Anytime we are corrected by God, by God through other people, that ultimately is a good thing. God is good to redeem even correction, hard conversations. I don't like those hard conversations. I've gotten better at them over the years as a pastor. I don't like running into them, but they're good for me and for others. Secondly, look at verse 7. Surely the oppression drives the wise into madness, but a bribe corrupts the heart. A bribe corrupts the heart. We gain wisdom through the adversity of overcoming temptation, and this is good. I had a conversation with someone this morning and we talked about, about the Holy Spirit pushing Jesus out into the wilderness to be tested by Satan for, for 40 days. Could you imagine how grueling that may have been? 
But Jesus overcoming temptation every single time. Actually, Luke 2.52 says Jesus grew in wisdom, stature, favor with God, and favor with man. i got to be careful here because I don't want to be a heretic here at Hume Lake. But, but <laughs> Jesus, that was church humor again. I, I, no one laughs at church humor anymore. Um, but, but it's true. You've got to be careful the way you talk about Jesus in, in, engaging temptation. But Jesus responded perfectly every time. Even the wise can be tempted with bribes and riches and things like that. But God is good to even allow some of this so we can overcome it. That adversity is good. There's another one, verse 8. Better is the end of a thing than its beginning, and the patient in spirit is better than the proud in spirit. We gain wisdom through the adversity of patience, and don't we hate that? (laughs) I just want everything yesterday, do you? We gain wisdom, though, through the adversity of patience, and this is a good thing. And the patient in spirit is better than the proud in spirit, better than the person that says, I'm just going to go and handle that and take care of that. I'm just going to grind and just get that done. No, 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 no. Just let God lead you by his spirit. Be patient. Gaining wisdom through the adversity of patience is good. God is good to give us that. Verse 9, be not quick in your spirit to become angry, for anger lodges in the heart of fools. Like here we see we gain wisdom through the adversity of anger, and this is good. That God could even redeem some of that. We all get angry about things. And we would be wise to ask ourselves, why? Why am I angry about that thing? And there's some kind of adversity in the midst of it that we've got to struggle and wrestle through that. And that is a good thing. It would be wise not to allow our anger to take hold of us so quickly and to take root in our lives. But we can see good in that. This is what the author of Ecclesiastes is saying. That kind of, a, that kind of adversity is a good thing for us. And there's one last one, verse 10, 7 and 10, or verse 10, where he says, Say not why were the former days better than these, for it is not from wisdom that you ask this. We gain wisdom through the adversity of living in the present. And you know what? Sometimes isn't that tough? Because sometimes our present is tough. Sometimes it's so easy to look back to sort of the glory days and go, remember when it was like that? Remember that season of life? Remember when our kids were that age? Remember that we lived in that place? Remember when we had that job? Remember when things just seemed to go so easy? Remember the time when you could just go to the restaurant and it was this amount of money? Or remember the time when you could just do this for that? And we, we want to, so it's so easy for us to go back to the past or to even look to the future and go, oh, well, someday we'll do this, and someday we'll be better over there, and someday maybe we'll have that, and someday this will change. And what the author of Ecclesiastes is saying, we gain wisdom through the adversity of actually living in the present, just being present in the present. And gaining wisdom through adversity is good. You know, it's so good that the teacher actually pauses to sing the praises of wisdom. Like, he, 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 he's, <laughs> he believes so much that there's so much good to be had in the midst of adversity, to, so much good to learn in the midst of adversity, that he, that he pauses just sort of to sing the praises of his adversity. Chapter 7, verses 11 to 12, wisdom is good with an inheritance, an advantage to those who see the sun. For the protection of wisdom is like the protection of money. And the advantage of knowledge is that wisdom preserves the life of him who has it. 
Wisdom through adversity is good because it doesn't just help us to live our lives better during times of adversity. It actually gives us life. What the author of Ecclesiastes is saying is that when you live your life under the sun, S-O-N, not just under the sun, S-U-N, adversity can actually be life-giving. There can be life even in the times of adversity. Paul says it this way to the Corinthians when he's talking about this idea of wisdom. For the Jews demand signs and Greeks seek wisdom, but we preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block to Jews and folly to Gentiles. This just seems so crazy if you don't know Christ. But to those who are called both Jews and Greeks, Christ, the power of God and the wisdom of God. For the foolishness of God is wiser than men and the weakness of God is stronger than men. In God's wisdom, he has ordained it to be this way. I've been saying, okay, <laughs> it's a lot of reasons, but I still want to know why. Why do we face the adversity that we do? Well, the teacher's given us a number of reasons so far. There's one last one. I think we see it in verse 13 where he says, Consider the work of God. Who can make straight what he has made crooked? I think the last lesson is that it can be most helpful to think about the purposes of God in our adversity. Can we say that together? It is most helpful to think about the purposes of God in our adversity. Generally, when we're in adversity, we're all we're thinking about is how do we get out of that? Like, how do I get away from this? How do I get as far away as I possibly can? I don't want to be anywhere near this. I don't want anything to do with this. I don't want this anywhere in my life or the life of the people that I love. I want to be done with this. It's most helpful to think about the purposes of God in our adversity, not just thinking about how we get out of it or get rid of it or get away from it or hedge ourselves against it. Our circumstances in adversity, unfortunately, the author of Ecclesiastes is telling us, they are what they are. We can't ultimately do anything to change them in an ultimate sense. So what is most helpful? What is most helpful? What is, most, what is the most good? What is the best thing that can come? What is the best outcome that we, can, that we can hope for in the midst of adversity? Consider the work of God. Who can make straight what he has made crooked? We will have times of joy. <laughs> we'll have weddings on the river right, with all kinds of food and dancing and celebration and people that we love. We will have times of joy and we will have times of adversity. We will be in hospital rooms and at funerals. We'll be crying with kids in the bedroom at night. Right? Like we, we'll, be, we'll, we'll, we'll be wrestling through seasons of life. We'll be struggling through it all. And we have to see both of them from the hand of God. And that is much easier said than done, is it not? I'm with you in that. I think that's why in verse 14 he says, in the day of prosperity, be joyful. <laughs> in the day of prosperity, be joyful. Do not be bashful. Be joyful in the day of prosperity. There's nothing wrong with that. Enjoy that. We saw that yesterday. And in the day of adversity, consider. Think about this when the adversity comes. So easy to enjoy the day of of prosperity. And in the day of adversity, consider God has made the one as well as the other, so that man may not find out anything.
that will be after him. We don't know ultimately what the future holds. We don't know all of the reasons why. Hindsight will be so good, you know, someday, just maybe not today. We don't know what will be next. So it's most helpful to focus on what God is wanting to teach us in the present through our present circumstances, whether it is prosperity or it is adversity. And again, the, <laughs> the author of Ecclesiastes is just shooting as straight as he can, as straight as a silas. He's just shooting it straight down the middle for us. Sometimes I don't like that, but I, it is helpful. And I hope it's helpful to, to you tonight. I want to end our time tonight by just drawing our attention to the, the reality that the purposes of God, um, the greatest purposes of God, were accomplished through the greatest adversity that the world has ever, that any human being has ever known. Right? Um, the greatest adversity any human being has ever known was the adversity that Jesus faced. The adversity that Jesus faced in his temptation in the wilderness, the adversity Jesus faced every time he was tempted with anything. In John 5, he, remember, he, 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 he tells the crowd there, name one, name a sin. If you've seen one, name one. I mean, Jesus lived a sinless life that we could never live. Could you imagine being, I mean, Jesus, fully God, fully man. The adversity in the wilderness, the adversity through all of the, the, the mocking, all of the accusations, all of the struggles with all of the religious leaders, all of the times the disciples didn't get it, all of the pushback, despite all of the throngs, crowds following him, all the times he knew that the only reason the thousands and thousands of multitudes were following him was because they wanted some bread and something to eat. They wanted him to heal their bodies, but they didn't have as much interest in what he could do with their soul. Jesus walked through not just the adversity of the cross, but I want you to, I want you to think about the adversity of the three years of his ministry that ultimately led to the cross. And think about the adversity of the garden. Do we know, do you know any human being has sweat drops of blood that their anxiety, for lack of a better term, the stress, I think is a better term, the stress of that moment was so great that they're sweating drops of blood. Then Jesus going to the cross. We know many people went to the cross. The difference for Jesus on the cross was a time where he would say, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? No other human being in the history of the world has ever said that or had that, felt that, had to walk through that kind of adversity. Jesus did. And the people that were watching at the time and the present didn't understand everything about all that was happening in that moment. I mean, they were as confused as you and I were, or you and I are, about some of the things that are happening in our present. But through the the greatest adversity that any human being has ever faced in the history of the world, Jesus Christ, the God-man, God accomplished the greatest things, the greatest thing in human history, the greatest thing in redemptive history. Jesus hanging on the cross, taking all of our sin and our guilt and our shame, taking the wrath of God, God's justice towards sin, all the times that we accuse him and blame him for all our adversity, Blame him for all the things in our life. All the times we sin against him by thinking wrongly about him, acting wrongly toward him, speaking wrongly to him. Jesus taking all of that on himself on the cross. 
So ultimately, one day for those who place their faith and hope and trust in Jesus, there's no more guilt and shame. There's no more penalty for sin. There's freedom. There's forgiveness. (laughs) There's grace. There's mercy. God accomplishing the greatest things that could ever be accomplished, the greatest adversity that's ever been experienced. That's the truth of the gospel. And so as Christians, we, we see these things, and it, it can give us some orientation in the midst of our own adversity. And I hope it does for you. And I think this is the good news. I tell you, I'd give you good news every night. And man, by the time we get to the end of these sermons, isn't it time for some good news, <laughs> especially in the book of Ecclesiastes? And I just want to pause and say, the author of Ecclesiastes, he writes it this way on purpose. Matter of fact, the audience that originally heard the words of Ecclesiastes weren't meant to hear any hope until chapter 12. I mean, think about, <laughs> think about that for a moment. But I, I'm doing my best to help us sort of see what they would never have seen. We, we see a, a, a bigger picture now. I'm, I'm, I'm trying to give us a little bit of hope, but if you feel the weight of Ecclesiastes, I want to say that's what you're meant to feel. We're meant to feel the weight of it. I'm trying to help point us to some good news here at the end of it. I think this is the good news this evening. Jesus endured the greatest adversity and triumphed over our greatest adversity. That is death. So we can have life in him even in our adversity. And I hope that's good news for you this evening. Would you pray with me? Jesus, thank you. I don't don't know... I don't know what else to say. Um, I, I wish the human, our, our human language had, had, had better words. Um, I just feel like thank you is, I don't know, it just feels like almost not enough. Um, but Lord, it's the words that we have, and you know the post- posture of our hearts. We just want to say thank you for, thank you for being present with us in the midst of our adversity. You're a God who's omnipresent. You're everywhere. You're, you're, you're with us. You're alongside us. Lord, thank you for for redeeming our adversity for so much good. Thank you for being so good to even give us little glimpses of it. Even though we can't see it all in the present moment, you give us little glimpses. And for the glimpses you've given us, Lord, we say thank you. For the hope that um, on the other side, maybe hindsight will be 2020, we'll see even more glimpses, we'll see even a fuller picture. We say thank you. And for the reality that one day... um, we will be with you and all adversity will be gone, that you'll wipe away every tear, that no, there will be no more pain, no more crying, no more death. Our greatest adversary and our greatest adversity will all be done and gone. And we say thank you. And again, I wish I had better words, but, um, but Lord, you know my heart, you know our hearts. We just, we're grateful that you can give us and you have given us so much hope in the midst of our adversity because of the hope you've won for us through your cross. And so we say thank you, Jesus, in your name. Amen. All right. Well, tomorrow night we're going to be talking about um, the meaninglessness of life with limits. Again, um, that's only meaningless when we live our life under the sun, S-U-N, not the sun, S-O-N.